0: OK, great. Um, hello and welcome to the Silk and Steel podcast. I am your host, Carl Zah. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Kareem. Um, Kareem, you know what? I will let you introduce yourself, what you do, what you're doing here, etc., etc., etc.
1: OK, so thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Kareem Wafa. I'm also known as Kareem Wafa Al-Husseini. I am a poet, a historian, a geopolitical analyst and a writer. Uh, my main area of historical specialization includes both the Western and the Eastern world. They're not really terms that I personally like to use, Western and Eastern, but unfortunately that's like how the world has somewhat thought of the world divided in these different sections. Concerning the Western sphere, I mainly focus on African-American history and Black American history. That's always been my main area of passion and specialization. Concerning the Eastern world or my part of the world, I focus on the history of the Middle East, South Asia, East Africa, and basically anything in the Indian Ocean. So from East Africa to Southern Arabia to Southeast Asia. And basically what we're going to talk about today, which is the mar- maritime silk Road, essentially. And I also do a lot of um, poetry that I mix with Arabic linguistics and Arabic literature. And I tend to um, promote it in terms of an easy form of poetry for the modern reader on my social media. So I tend to mix both my academic, historical, and geopolitical side with my artistic side across my different platforms, basically.
0: that That, that is amazing. So I, I suppose you are here to talk to us about the eastern half of the world, um, yeah. specifically the Indian basin, Indian ocean basin trade. Uh, this is a Actually, most people may not know about this but this for thousands of years this is one of the most important sea lanes that's linking the important civilization in the world uh you know you got the you got the uh india china and then you have the the arabic world the the arabic muslim world um and africa on one side and and you know up till like I say, up to the so-called Great Discovery era when the Portuguese intrude into the uh, Indian Ocean Basin, this, this, this trade has been going on uninterrupted. But, you know, you are the expert, so I will let you <laughs> give us the talk. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's
1: going gonna, it's gonna to be a very casual conversation like we can both share. <laughs> Um, But yeah, okay, so let's get started. Um, um, To be honest, there's just so much to say about this Indian Ocean trade that I really don't even know where to begin. Because to be honest, as people from the Middle East, as Asian and African people, we have such a very rich history. But unfortunately, our history is given credit um, a lot of people don't really study our history when we talk when, anytime that i ever am interviewed about the indian ocean trade um to be honest i used to be surprised but now i'm not surprised anymore but people don't even know anything about it they don't well, know you know anything.
0: what karim that's gonna change because we're here and and from now on everybody is gonna learn about the indian ocean tri- trade so yeah. um, for people who who you know may, this might be like some a strange concept. Uh, the indian ocean trade is part of the maritime silk route i mean pe- you may have heard of people may have heard about the you know silk road but the silk road is actually have It's not one road. There's like many roads. And one of the major component is a marine time soak roads that, uh, you know, from China go down through South China Seas, through the Straits of Malacca into the Indian Ocean, where it's getting hooked up to this very important Indian Ocean basin trade. And uh, so I'm very excited. I'm very excited when you first reach out to me on Twitter and and when you say you want to talk about it, I'm like, okay, I, I think we have. Uh, expert here so so let's go <laughs> let's go Kermit.
1: okay so basically one thing which is so interesting is that whenever we talk about the Indian Ocean or about any type of trade that connected the Middle East, Asia, Africa and all the way to Southeast and East Asia This is not something new. It has been going on for thousands of years. I mean, even when we talk about the Indian Ocean maritime trade today or the Maritime Silk Road, this is something that most people think of from the first millennium up until today. But you even had an older form of trade, which was the jade maritime trade that was happening all the way from Taiwan and Eastern China, all the way into Philippine and Indonesia. And archaeological experts have also found different forms of um, jade and uh, special materials and raw resources in the Philippines and in Indonesia that go all the way back to Taiwan and China, even Japan and Korea. So well,
0: let's let's start. Maybe let's start there, because this is something new to me. I, I first this is my first time hearing about the maritime. J trade because you um I, I know about J production in Myanmar. Uh-huh. Uh so I, I was surprised to hear you know, the, the, the jade trade goes all the way to South China Sea. So let, let's go, let's go, let's go.
1: <laughs> honest, this is something that I discovered also very recently. I mean, I was reading some articles and they were saying about how, I don't remember what dynasty there was at that time in Eastern China and towards Taiwan. And that apparently there were so many mariners and traders that were exporting jade to areas in the Philippines and Indonesia and Vietnam. So basically that whole area of Southeast Asia and how that also linked Southeast Asia to so many different kingdoms, such as the Srivijaya empire that was present as the the dynasties that were present in Indonesia and Bali and Sumatra. So if that shows anything, it essentially shows that Southeast Asia was connected to East Asia by a pre-modern form of trade that goes back thousands of years and This is even more interesting when we look at how Southeast Asia and East Asia then over the years connected with the Middle East and East Africa as well, such as with one of the Chinese uh, explorers who was Zheng He, who came all the way to East Africa, to Southern Arabia. So that's, we're reaching my part of the world as well, which is so interesting because of the fact that you had at this time the spread of the religion of Islam. And what happened was, There were so many different Arab identities that began to arrive in Asia at that time, especially Southeast Asia and East Asia. But out of all of them, the most important ones were the Yemenis and the Omanis. The Yemenis were always very open and very, they were explorers by nature, just like the Omanis. So the Oman is usually known to be a country of the Arab Gulf. And Yemen, despite the fact that it is a part of the Arabian Peninsula, has had a very different, Unique history, uh, even when we, we look at the architecture, the literature of Yemen has very ancient roots in a pre-Arab civilization. So when we look at the history of the Arab world today, a lot of scientists, historians, archaeologists archeologi- as well have stated that like the earliest forms of Arab history emerged in Yemen. And if one looks at the map of the Middle East, I mean, Yemen is the closest country of the Arabian Peninsula to the African continent. I mean, it just takes 20 minutes to an hour or so by boats to go from Yemen to Djibouti or Eritrea. So this even, time... Even
0: people who don't know, like, about anything about Yemen, they uh, may have heard about the biblical story of Queen Sheba, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's Queen, where Queen Sheba came from, 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 from exactly. Yemen. Exactly. And... Yeah, yeah. And, and so a lot of people don't realize Yemen has this very rich civilization that even predates Islam. Um, exactly. and uh, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting. I'm just really getting really no, no, excited no, no, no.
1: talking about no, it. interesting you. Because I also <laughs> want to know like what you know about it. So it's like a very interesting dialogue. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so like in the case of Yemen, it's very interesting because we look at Yemen as like the birthplace of Arab identity. And you did have different Arab tribes that emerged in Yemen, for example. So I know from my grandmother's side of the family, she is Palestinian, but she has her dad's family are originally from south of Yemen on the sea, not very far from where people take boats to go to Somalia and to Djibouti and Eritrea. So this, um, history of trade and migration is so embedded in our history. But unfortunately, as we go along in our everyday life, we tend to forget about these things. So, I mean, even Even within the history of Yemen, not only was it the birthplace of so many different civilizations, empires, dynasties and cultures, but you had a very unique writing system as well that developed. And so many very proud Yemenis today have even begun um, deciphering this ancient language, this ancient alphabet, and lots of people have started to use that alphabet when it comes to like, you know, um, promoting themselves and their identity. They use the alphabet as well because it's reclaiming your heritage, reclaiming your history. It's something that we see as well in North Africa. And North Africa is a very different conversation, with, which gets even more confusing for lots of people because of the fact that is it Arab, is it Berber? You know, this, this very interesting dilemma. So in the case of Yemen, when they arrived in Southeast Asia, the first Yemenis that essentially began um, diffusing the religion of Islam, they were, lots of them were Sufis. So I don't know if you, you've heard of Sufism. Yes. Most probably, yeah. So what's so interesting about Sufism is that when Sufis went from one place to another, they were very open people in the sense that they were accepting different traditions, different religions, and different spiritualities of different parts of the world, despite the fact that they were very different from Islam. So when we look at Just even how Islam became very popular in West Africa, all the way in Senegal and Niger and Nigeria, this part of West Africa, it mixed with different tribal beliefs and cultural elements and customs and traditions that were not Muslim, but they, it was easier for the people to adopt Islam once the Sufis were like, you can keep your tradition, but you can also be a Muslim. So they were like, okay, that's interesting. So that's how so many people began adopting this new faith. And that's how Indonesia began accepting and dabbling into the religion of Islam. And today Indonesia being the most populous Muslim country in the world, which is so amazing and so interesting. Because when you say a Muslim country, people would think that the most populated one or the most popular Muslim country would be Arab. But they're like Southeast Asia. That's very far from the Middle East. And Indonesia has such a rich heritage and very rich culture. And you find this across the different islands, Sumatra, Java, Bali, that essentially mixed between the hindu element the buddhist element and then in modernity you had the arrival of islam i mean under buddhism you had the shrivijaya empire then with the muslims and the sufis yet that the Arayat that brought elements from yemeni and arab culture so this trade has has thrived for centuries for a very very long time and under so many different dynasties that you even find and this was very interesting for a lot of people when i was discussing this when the chinese were migrating and they were trading with the arabs all the way in the western indian ocean and the very pillar of trade in the western indian ocean was the island of zanzibar zanzibar essentially became the very pillar of arab and african identity coming together and then when the arabs arrived
0: carrying yeah. i have to stop you for a second because for a lot of my many of my audience it may not be um us worldly in terms of world geographic. So we have to locate for them where is Zanzibar. You know, they may know Zanzibar is somewhere off the African coast, but they may not know where exactly it is. So Go
1: ahead. Okay, so when we looked at the Indian Ocean, this very huge expanse of water, we're looking at on the extreme, on the east, I'm looking at Indonesia, we're looking at Malaysia, and then all the way down, which ties into the Pacific, we have Australia and New Zealand. But then we go to the other side, the other extreme, we have East Africa. And the biggest island in East Africa is the island of Madagascar, and which, interestingly enough, was also controlled by the Arabs for a certain point in time, especially in the north of Madagascar, not in the south. But when we're looking at Zanzibar, Zanzibar is a is an archipelago. It's a combination of different islands. And the main island is the island of Unguja. It is located in East Africa, off of the coast of mainland Tanzania. It used to be um, an independent um, uh states used to be an independent island however over time as africa began unfortunately being subjugated to colonialism to european imperialism it eventually over time became part of mainland tanzania but even though today zanzibar is part of tanzania it has a unique identity a unique culture which is why there is a certain part of the population until today in zanzibar who want to be independent and others don't want to be independent so there's this diffusion on both sides, you know. But what's so interesting is that Zanzibar has had indigenous African tribes that have been living on the island for thousands of years from the very beginning of time. But the Arabs um, began arriving on the island of Zanzibar. Most people think that that happened very recently, but that is actually a very um, unfortunate misrepresentation because Arabs, South Asians, and even Southeast Asians, especially Indonesians, were trading in East Africa for thousands of years. When we look at the input of Omanis, especially as the main Arab traders in the island of Zanzibar, most people think that that happened during the 15th and 16th centuries. But then when we go back in history, we realize that this input of Arab identity in the Indian Ocean was only renewed It was essentially a new chapter because that has been going on for such a long time. And the Arabs began trading in East Africa, in Zanzibar, what we call today the Maritime Silk Road, because of the fact that people think that the Silk Road is only by land, but was also by sea. There were two dimensions to that, as people were connected by two different, very different environments, essentially. So when the Armanis arrived in Zanzibar, they essentially saw that there were um, a lot of different plantations, so much vegetation, so much flora and fauna. It was a very rich, and it still is a very rich island in terms of agriculture. So this is how, essentially, Zanzibar ended up um, developing this identity and its status as the island of spices. It is called the Spice Island, because when the Omanis began taking control of Zanzibar, this happened during, like, the 16th century. Because, as you said at the beginning of the episode, that's when the Portuguese started arriving in the Indian Ocean, especially in our part of um, the global hemisphere, and when the Portuguese arrived, they arrived on the Arabian Peninsula and they controlled Oman and different parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Even where I am now in Bahrain, they controlled Bahrain. Um, we even have a fort, which was the Portuguese fort. And the Portuguese did control us for, I'm not sure in Bahrain how many years, but they controlled our part of the Middle East for over one, two hundred years, if I'm not mistaken. So there was this influence. However, it was not that deep because people never really spoke portuguese they never really adopted portuguese identity so it was more just political it was just superficial but it impacted the history of the region so essentially when the portuguese arrived in oman and they conquered oman and um, then the omanis developed this interest to you know what let's kick the portuguese out but let's not only do this let's go and follow them where they're going so what that happened was when the portuguese were out of the arabian peninsula They went back to East Africa and the Armanis followed them in East Africa. And they started um, embarking on their naval forces and their boats and their ships. And they were following the Portuguese and they reached on the coast of East Africa, the city of Mombasa in Kenya. They reached Mombasa. They reached Nairobi, um, which is further inland. They reached Dar es Salaam, the island of Zanzibar. And mainly today we are talking about Kenya and Tanzania. Um, and Zanzibar being next to Tanzania in the south. So this entire area of the coast of Kenya and Tanzania became subjugated to the arrival of the Arabs, but in a new way. So when the Arabs began arriving in East Africa, they ended up bringing Arab culture, they ended up bringing Islam. And when the Arabs arrived, it's interesting, like if we look at the map of the Arabian Peninsula, it's called the Arabian Gulf, it's called the Persian Gulf, depending on what people want to use. I really, it doesn't matter to me. When we look at this part um, of the Middle East, the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, there is an Arab impact on the West and in the East there is the Persian impact so when the arabs began arriving in east africa they did not arrive alone they also brought the persians with them many times the persians arrived by themselves and other times you had the persians arrived with the arabs together because of the fact that in the arabian gulf or the persian gulf arabs persians indians um even balushis that are located between iran Pakistan and India were all trading and were mixing, creating a very common but unique culture and civilization. So when these people essentially arrived in East Africa that culture was already mixed to a certain extent. It had different elements of Arab, Persian, South Asian culture that were all united under Islam. So when they arrived in East Africa, they brought that culture and you had different languages that were being spoken on the coast of East Africa. And this is why we talk about Swahili. I mean, the word Swahili comes from the Arabic word. It comes from the Arabic word Sahel. Sahel means the coast. So when the Arabs were there, they were like, oh, he is a Sahili, he is a Sahili, he comes from the coast. So over time, the African pronunciation pronounced Sahili into Swahili into Swahili. So that means the people of the coast, the identity of the coast, the people who come from the sea. So that was such an interesting chapter of human history that I feel like we need to give more attention to, which is so interesting because it is a form of pre-modern globalization pre-modern connections between so many different cultures. And that essentially shatters the idea that, like, the Western world or the West in general has promoted that, like, as brown and black people outside of Europe, there have been no connections in history. No, we have been trading with each other for thousands of years. In fact, we have created so many identities and mixed cultures for thousands of years that came through maritime trade, like we're talking about today, but that also came about with land-based silk roads. So essentially, this trade spent such a very long, lengthy period of time that one recent archaeological discovery even found ancient um, glassware Teacups and spoons from China in the empire of Great Zimbabwe in South Africa, because that time the Arabs were arriving in East Africa. And when unfortunately, when the Arabs arrived in East Africa at that time, you also had the start or I'm not going to say the start because it happened already, but an intensification of the slave trade. And um what happened at that time was that essentially you had East African people that were being enslaved by the Arabs mainly, but you also had the Persians, the South Asians and Southeast Asians. So there was the entire input into East Africa and you had mainly East Africans were being shipped to the Middle East. And from the Middle East, those who did not stay in the Middle East were then sent to different parts of um, Anatolia, Turkey. You had um, Persia, you had South Asia, and sometimes they went all the way into Central Asia. Asia and North Africa in various directions. So it all depended on the identity of the trader, of the people that were engaged in that trade and their transport. So it was a very mixed chapter of human history. And this, this also touches on one of the areas of my work as well, because when you see the input of African identity in the Middle East, you also have the creation of different types of traditions and customs. And these traditions include art, music, poetry, dancing, um, literature. And so many of these things in the Middle East today were impacted by this chapter of the Indian Ocean trade and the Maritime Silk Road. Unfortunately, although it is not something that is known, but a lot of these different aspects of our culture and our histories can go all the way back into that time of the Maritime Silk Road.